Okay, when we come to uh, this section that we've read together, Matthew chapter 2, when we uh, come to the account of the wise men, uh, I think if we're going to get anywhere at all with us this morning, I think we have to be aware of (laughs) the subconscious presuppositions that we might have, the subconscious presuppositions. Do you see what I mean? Just think about how our society deals with this story that Chris has kindly read for us. Or let me put it like this. If I say to you, wise men, what do you think about wise men? What comes to mind when you think about the wise men? I think for many of us, it'll be Christmas cards, uh, won't it? Maybe that Christmas card that you got this week with a three sort of cartoon figures on the front of the Christmas card and they're each of them they're riding a camel and you've got a star above them maybe that's what we think when we think the wise men or some of us maybe we think about like nativity plays in schools is that what we think about when we think about wise men you know little kids and they're kitted out in their dressing gowns and they've got a tea towel on their head and they're handing wrapped up shoe boxes to a doll Maybe that's the sort of thing that comes to mind when we think about uh, the wise men. Do, do, do you see what we've done with this account? We've taken this account and we have as a society, we've kind of mythicized it. Do you see that we have taken this account in Matthew 2 and we have taken it out of the category of the historical and we have tried as a society to, to put it into a new category of kind of myth. Like fairy story, we try to make it a sort of fable. Well, as we start this morning, I just want to make two really quick, brief, elementary statements. One is the obvious one. This is a historical account, isn't it? It is presented to us by Matthew in that way. It's historical. So right now, You and I can forget the sort of Christmas card guys, you know, the three guys, cartoon guys. We can forget those guys. And instead, perhaps, you and I can try and imagine the furore in a first century town, a small town, as this group of probably quite exotic guys, they come riding into town and they begin to speak about a king. And a king being born? So that's the first thing. This is historical. The second introductory elementary thing that I need to say as well is that this is a very important account. It may be historical, of course it is, but it is also important because I ask you, what did these wise men, what did they come into Bethlehem to do? They came in to fall before Jesus of Nazareth in praise. Do you see why this portion of Scripture is important? This is here to instruct us about adoration. This is here to instruct us about praise. This section of Scripture is given to you by God to teach us about the necessity and the nature of the worship and the worship that is due even today, to Jesus Christ. So, can I make sure that we've all got a section of this, of Matthew, in front of us? 
If not, what we'll try and do, even if you, you don't have a Bible with you or you can't get it on the phone, we'll try and put one or two things up on the screens as we, we go through this portion of Scripture. But the first thing that I want us to, to notice is really what we'll call, for lack of a better word, we'll call it the scope of worship. The scope of worship. That's the first thing I want you and I to try and think about just now. Now, you're probably with me on this when I say this, but when it comes to this section of Scripture, there are a whole raft of mistakes that uh, people like to make that we can make with this portion of Scripture, aren't there? If you think about it, a whole raft of mistakes. We can assume, first of all, that what we're dealing with here are kings. Uh, Again, not going to sing. I keep saying this in our services, Will and I, but I'm not going to sing it to you, but we three kings of Orient are, we can assume that these men that we're dealing with are kings. There doesn't seem to be anything in the text that we back that up whatsoever. Okay, so we can make that mistake. What's the obvious mistake we can make as well? We can assume their number, can't we? How many wise men? We all go, ah, oh, there's three wise men, don't we? But again, it doesn't seem to be much to, to base that on other than the number of gifts. So all these mistakes, and we could go on and go on with those mistakes, but instead what we'll try and do is focus only what we are told in this portion of Scripture. So let me just throw out four very quick details about these people, and let's see if we can grab them. Four really quick details to mention, okay? First, let's note their occupation. So if you've got a Bible, just have a look at it in verse 1. We are told that these men, they're coming into Jerusalem after Jesus' birth. What are they? Wise men, right? Wise men, from the Greek word magos. Now, again, I think we've, we've got to be careful there, because that's where we get our English word, magician. And so I think we've got to resist that temptation to think of these guys as like, oh, look, here come these sorcerers, <laughs> you know, these wizards into Bethlehem. It's not a bit of it, uh, uh, not a bit of it at all. No, more likely, what we've got to be thinking about here are astronomers. Do you follow? So these are men devoted to what was a common pursuit in the ancient world, and that of studying the stars. That's what we're dealing with here. Okay, wise men. First thing, so that is their occupation. Second thing, their navigation. Because how do they get about? It's an obvious thing. They don't use sat-nav. They don't use ways. They don't even have a map. Uh, do they? How do they get about the get about. They're led to Jerusalem by a star. And no, we don't know much about that, do we? We're not told. We don't know what that star looked like even, do we? Like some people have suggested it was Halley's Comet. Some people have suggested that it was planetary alignment here. And okay, no, we don't know. But what we must affirm and assert just now is that this was a divinely appointed light. Listen, that this star was something that fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy from Balaam's oracle way back Numbers 24, the prophecy of a star. So what have we got? The occupation. We've got the navigation. Third one, their intention. What was their intention? Well, we're only in Matthew chapter 2, but already, if you have been here at our services in recent weeks, you have seen the theme of Jesus' kingship come to the fore already, haven't you? 
I mean, we've seen that in the genealogy, haven't we? This line of royal succession. We've seen it also here in the mention of David's royal time. So it doesn't come as a surprise here, does it? When we get into Matthew 2, to hear of these wise men's purpose. What does verse 2 say to you? They have come to pay homage, if you like, to the king, to the king of the Jews. So occupation, navigation, intention. Really, it's the last one that I want you to notice here, and that is their origin. Fraser, can you put it up? First one. Good on you. Okay, here's verse one. Where do they come from? What, what exactly are we told? Do you see at the end of the verse, the wise men came from where? The east. The east. Now again, look, we're not told much. What does that mean? Does it mean Babylon? Does it mean further into Mesopotamia? We're dealing with Persia there? No, we're not really told. But you know what that does for us? That underlines a very crucial truth that these men you and I are thinking about today, they were foreigners. These men were, they were Gentiles. These men were men who had come off miles and miles and miles away and traveled a long distance to get to Jesus. And maybe you can see right now why we do have to linger on that because what question do we ask then? Don't we ask why? Like why did God not bring people from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? Don't you ask that? Like why did God not, not, not bring them? Okay, use a star, but why not bring them from Capernaum? Why come from so far? Do, do, do you see the answer? These men came all the way, led from the east. Why? To show that Jesus' reign has worldwide implications. I want you to hear it. I want you to grasp it. Why brought from the east? To show that this child in his mother's arms wasn't just a king for Israel. Not just a king for Jerusalem. But this child in his mother's arms, a king for, for all of the world and maybe you're uh, visiting St. Peter's uh, this morning maybe you're plugging in uh, because of this wonderful time of year it's Christmas time well if even if you're visiting you know how people tend to treat the Christmas story don't you People tend to view the Christmas story and say, okay, it's nice, and but it's a bit remote and it's a bit distant. It's for, kind of, it's for other people from a kind of bygone era, really. But hang on, do you see what this means? If Jesus is a king for all of the world, for people from all over the globe, then you need to understand this morning, this Jesus, this birth affects you. Friends, what we're seeing from the wise men is actually the right response from all people, from all over the globe, from all ages to Jesus. What is the right response? Like them, we ought to fall before Jesus, bow to him, and bow to him as king. So we've seen the scope of worship. Second, uh, let's see the absence of worship. So it's, it's often said that men, us men, uh, we display how stubborn we are when we get lost. <laughs> um, we can be, when we get lost, we can be, us men, the most stubborn of creatures. Um, you know what it's like. We'll be in the car and we've already been really stubborn enough to say, no, we're not going to use sat-nav because we know where we're going. 
we're not, we don't need to use it. We don't be silly. And if what happens, we get lost. And then we're so stubborn that we won't even then use Satnav. And then <laughs> we display absolutely how stubborn we are. Because we, the last thing that we're ever going to do is ask for directions. Isn't that right? I'm sure some of the, the, the wives in here will affirm that of their husbands. It's a ludicrous idea. No matter how lost we are, never going to ask for directions. That's madness. Well, thankfully, the wise men were not as uh, stubborn as many of uh, the men in here maybe are. Um, because what do they do? At this point, they've been brought uh, to Jerusalem, only Jerusalem. And they get to Jerusalem and they do not know where to go, where to look to see where this child is, is born in a sense. What do they do? They, they go and ask for directions. And as they do that, what we see are three different responses to Jesus. What we actually see, I wonder if you noticed it, we see three groups of people, let's call them groups of people, who refuse to go to Jesus to worship him. And I just want to draw your attention to those. So um, if we could put verse 3 up on the screen. We'll just leave it there for a minute or two. What's the, 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 the first person? Do, do you see who's mentioned there? Herod. Now what it says, so Herod, think about it, he hears of Jesus' birth. And what's, what does the ESV say there? The Herod, he heard this, and he was what? He's troubled. Do you know what? It doesn't help us in English a lot. Uh, that's a bit vague, isn't it? That can mean a lot of things, that Herod was troubled by the news of this birth, couldn't it? It could mean a lot of things. The idea behind this much more is the idea that Herod felt threatened, friends. He felt threatened by the news of this birth. And I reckon you can immediately see why, can't you? What do we know about Herod. He was an illegitimate Israelite king. We know that, don't we? Herod was only half Jewish. Herod was a man who, whose rule was sort of forced upon the people by Rome. So you can get it now. He's hearing from these wise men. What did you say? What did you say? There is a, a true king, a right king, that is born, one born king of the Jews. And you can see it, Herod is threatened by this, friends, just as so many people can be today. Resisting, coming to Jesus Christ. Why? Because the threat that they fear, that, that Jesus poses to their own rule, to their own autonomy in their life. Friend, is that you? That's the first one, Herod. Second group, though, notice the general populace because it doesn't just say Herod was troubled. Read, read it again with me. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all, all Jerusalem was troubled by the news of this birth. Isn't that a strange detail? The whole of the population were troubled by this. And again, look, we're not exactly told. I think it's probably safe enough for us to speculate. I think we can recognize what's going on here because you know the history. You know that the general population have had loads of tension with Rome in recent times, haven't they? There's been uprisings, revolts, hasn't there? There's loads of tension and trial with Rome. And so you can see it from the general population's perspective. You said, what? What? A king is born? 
What is this going to mean for us? Is there going to be another revolt? Is there going to be another uprising? And they're fearful. They're worried. They're anxious about this. Just as, ah, friends, just as so many people can be today. Resisting coming to Jesus Christ. Why? Out of a fear that if they come to Jesus, that will turn their world upside down. Friend, is that you? But then it is the third refusal, I think, that needs uh, our focus. And that is on the religious elite. Because, you know, stating the most obvious thing in the world this morning, but you know this portion of scripture. (laughs) You know it really well, don't you? So I wonder this. Here's one for you. I wonder, you've read this, what, 400 times in your life, maybe some of you. Some of you maybe heard 400 sermons on this portion of scripture. Have you ever noticed what doesn't happen? What doesn't happen here? Have you ever thought about it? Let's get the situation right. What happens? So the the wise men come to Herod. We got that? Herod doesn't know where this child is to be born, does he? He doesn't know. Where does he turn? He turns to the chief priests and scribes. Tell me, where is he born? And the amazing thing, of course, is that the, the religious leaders, the religious people are able to give Herod an answer, aren't they? They're able to look to the Old Testament and say, oh, this child is to be born. The promised child, the deliverer, is born in Bethlehem. And now do you see it? What what doesn't happen? Isn't it startling to think that the religious leaders then don't go to Bethlehem? I mean, isn't that something? I mean, this is the religious leaders, the religious teachers in the nation. And they know that the promised Christ is to be born in Bethlehem, just a few miles away from where they are. And they're supposed to be all about this Christ. They're supposed to be waiting eagerly for this Christ. And now in front of them, are wise men who are saying that event's happened. The Christ has been born. And what happens or what doesn't happen? They don't go. These religious leaders, the scribes, there's nothing to suggest that they go. Friends, do you see the lesson? Do you? We can have all of the biblical knowledge in the world. We can have all the spiritual privileges imaginable. You know, we can be able to quote the Bible verbatim. But unless God works in our hearts and unless God leads us to Jesus Christ, we will never worship him as we ought. And surely there are people listening in just now and in this room that need to pay heed to that. Some of the younger people. What about those who are adherents, those who haven't professed faith? I mean, I want you to just, if that's you, I want you to think about your situation and how privileged you are what is God where does God put you he's actually put you in a land and it's incredibly rare but he's put you in a land where there is freedom of religion he's put you in a place in a country where you can if you choose to you can hear the gospel proclaimed week in week out (laughs) sometimes through the week sometimes twice on a Sunday Do you know what God's done for some of you? God has placed you in families where you have grown up 
hearing the Bible read and the Bible taught, surely you see the lesson, or rather, surely you see the warning here. You must not be like these religious people, these religious leaders in Matthew chapter 2. Even today, you ought to pray to God, plead with God to lead you to Jesus that you might do what is desired, that you might come to worship him by faith. So we've seen scope of worship and absence of worship. And then thirdly, the object of worship, the object of worship. I, uh, I was trying to work it out if I've, ta- if I've said this to you before or not, um, but I can't work it out. So you're just going to have to excuse me if you've heard it before. But one um, rule that I think we should always observe when we're reading the Bibles, when we're reading our Bibles at home, is that we should pay attention to what seems out of place. Have I talked about that before? And here, maybe I have, uh, maybe I haven't. But you get the idea. You know, we wake up, hopefully many of us are in the practice of waking up, spending some time with God's Word in the morning, maybe even before we get to our phone or even our breakfast But you get, you're reading scripture and you get to a phrase and it looks odd. Do you know that? It looks out of place. Then it's a very good practice just to pause at that moment and ask, well, what is that doing there? (laughs) It seems odd. It seems out of place. Why is it there? Well, there is something like that here in Matthew chapter 2. Because I wonder if you would agree with me that this story, from verse 1 to 12, that this story is scarce of detail. Would you agree with that? There's so many things that remain unsaid. Um, I'm sure it's not just me scratching. I want to know how many magi there were. (laughs) I really do want to know that. And I want to know where they're from. See that star? I'm desperate to know more about that star, in a sense. Do do you see? This is a story that is told with a great economy of words. Don't you agree? And, And because of that, there is something that really stands out here. Because think about it. The Magi, then they go on to Bethlehem, and they enter the house, and they see Jesus, and they fall before Jesus. And then what does Matthew do? Matthew then goes into great detail about the types of gifts that are given to Jesus. Don't you find that unusual? Like the rest of it is bare bones. This is told with a great economy of, of words and detail. And yet Matthew here is going to town telling us all about these, these gifts. Do, do, do we ask why that is? Why such detail here? Well, From the earliest times in the Christian church, many Christians have seen a spiritual significance in these gifts. Do you follow the idea? As though unbeknownst to the wise men, that the gifts that they give, they speak of Jesus' person and they speak of his work. Can you think about that with me for a moment? Because I know that if I went through to Sunday school, I could ask the kids, couldn't I, like, what gifts, what gifts did they bring? The kids will just straight away, they would know what the three gifts were. Can we think about them for just a second? Frankincense? Incense? Isn't that an unusual gift to give a child for Christmas? But isn't it a strange gift to bring incense? 
incense. But then isn't it very interesting to think about that scripturally, biblical? Because from the very start of scripture, all the way through scripture, what we find is incense linked to prayer. Psalm 141, oh God, let my prayer be counted as incense. Revelation chapter 5, bowls of incense are the prayers of the saints. Could it be then that this incense is some sort of symbolic gift? Could it be that this speaks to the person and the identity of Jesus, that this little child in his mother's arms, who is he? But the one fit to receive prayer. The, the one who is able to perfect the prayers of his people. Could it be? Frankincense. What else? Gold. Gold. That is a, an easy one, isn't it? Gold. Gold, the most precious of metals. Gold, what is it? It is a gift fit not just for a king, but it's fit for the king of kings. What do we have? We all know the gifts. Gold, frankincense. What's the last one? Gold, frankincense. Myrrh. A fragrant resin. An expensive spice. That you can scan scripture. You can think about how it's been used throughout the Bible. Time and time again, myrrh was used in the treatment of dead bodies, wasn't it? Myrrh was used to embalm the dead. Isn't that arresting? Surely, isn't it striking to consider what we're told later on in John's gospel? That Jesus' own body, Jesus' own body, treated with myrrh in death. I mean, could it be again that this myrrh is symbolic? Could it be that this gift speaks to something of Jesus' work? Who's the child here in Bethlehem? Could it be that what's been emphasized is this is the child that is truly born to die? That here is the child born to, to die a special death, a unique death. Here is the one to die for sin, to atone for sin. Could it be that these gifts are symbolic? Could it be? Maybe. But I actually think there's something better here. I actually think that, that Matthew is underlining, going into detail on these gifts here, underlining these gifts for a further reason, and it is to show that Old Testament scripture is being fulfilled in the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Listen to me, way back in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 60, written hundreds of years before the coming of the Lord, Isaiah the prophet speaks. Now listen to what he talks about. Isaiah 60 he speaks of a day coming, a momentous day. Listen to the details. It will be a day when Gentile dignitaries would travel and would come to Israel. It would be a day, this day, great day of light, a day of praise. And get this, Isaiah tells us it will be a day for multitudes of camels shall arise, uh, arrive from far off into Israel. And it will be a day when their riders shall bring gifts. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Isn't that amazing? 
Isn't it amazing to see so exalted is this child in his mother's arms? He is, yes, deserving of precious gifts, but so exalted is this child that he is the one, Jesus is the one spoken of about 750 years prior to his birth. He is worthy of our praise. And then the last thing, we've seen the scope of worship, the absence of worship, the object of worship. The last thing is just the nature of worship. I think I need to close maybe addressing an objection or a concern that you might have had banging about in your brain since the very beginning of this sermon, a question, a concern, an objection even that you've got, because you might be sitting there thinking, Andy, what are you saying? You're saying that these wise men almost given us a template for worship, that this is about worship of Christ. But Andy, are these guys just showing some deference to a kingly figure? Like I'm standing up saying, no, this, they're worshiping this. Jesus is the God man. But is that right? Is this not just, come on, man. Is this not just homage, deference to, to a, a kingly figure? I, I just want to close by saying, no, I don't think that's what it is. I want to close by showing you, I think, that this really is true devotion and praise to Jesus. How? First, don't you and I know that acting like this, bowing to men in worship, is something that is consistently frowned upon in, in, in the Bible? You just think about Paul and Barnabas. Do you remember this sort of thing happens to them? What do they do? They rip off their clothes. They were having absolutely none of it. This sort of adoration and praise is something consistently that must be reserved for God alone. We see that then. If you're really saying to me, but, but if this is just wise men behaving, this is how they behave with foreign dignitaries, Andy. Why don't they do it with Herod? I mean, he's a king, isn't he? There's absolutely nothing to suggest that they show that sort of deference and, and respect to him. But then, most convincingly, consider this. The fact that falling, this idea of falling before Jesus Christ in humble praise and worship, this is something that becomes a major theme in Matthew's gospel. Do you appreciate that? That where rarely, actually, in the other gospels does it happen, what Matthew does is record people responding to Jesus like this, falling before him in worship. Matthew records this a full 13 times in his book, from the leper that was cleansed to the synagogue ruler to the disciples in the boat to the women at the tomb and all beginning here with the wise men, the Magi of Bethlehem. What do we see in Matthew's gospel? Time and time and time again, we see God giving people insight into the true identity of Jesus. And what do they do when they recognize who he is? Those people fall. They bow to Jesus in adoration, praise, worship, and they bow to Jesus in faith. And so I think the application 
from this portion of Scripture should be really obvious to us. First, to the Christians in the room and listening online. Do you not think we need to learn from Matthew chapter 2? Does this not fuel our worship for Jesus Christ? Because who is he? Yes, he is. We see here, he is the one who is deserving our all. Jesus is the one we see from this, don't we? He's the one deserving the best of what we have. Jesus is the one deserving the best of our time, the best of our resources, the best of our energy. But should we not move into this Christmas week in the run-up to next Saturday, absolutely determined to give him the best of our worship, to spend time praising the name of Jesus Christ as his people? Yes, for the Christians. But then for those who are not believers in the room and listening online, surely you see the message from this text to you. You can see that what God calls for from you is more than this. Can't you see that if you're not a Christian? What God is calling for from you is more than just a nod to Jesus at Christmas, more than just an attendance at a guest service or tuning in at this time of year. No, what God calls for is the same as the wise men. Friend, what you must do is enter the house. What you must do, follow the wise men. What you must do is behold Jesus. You must see that this Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the Messiah. He's the deliverer. And then what you must do is fall before Jesus in worship, wonder, repentance, and faith. That is what is called for from God. You do that, you receive everlasting life. That's what's on offer this morning in the gospel. Forgiveness. All of that burden of your sin, all of that burden at being at enmity with God in Jesus Christ, wiped away. You reconciled with God. So what do you do this Christmas? Surely you come to Jesus. Surely, surely you bow to him. You bow to him and know the joy of everlasting life, the joy that comes when we worship the king. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example that the wise men are to us as people. Lord God, we thank you that you did bring people from far off and you brought them from the east and you brought them through to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we see in that that it must be your work to do this. So we ask, Lord God, if there are some who do not know Jesus Christ, that you would indeed bring them to yourself, that they might be shown the identity of Jesus Christ, the very God-man, that they might see the work of Jesus Christ, that he is the one who has dealt with sin. O Lord God, we praise you for these things, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.